And then today, uh, we wrap up our series. We've been going through a Bible teaching series all around this idea of unity, whether that's unity in the church, unity in your home, unity with your kids and marriage, unity at work. And I mean, you could just go on and on and on with all the different relationships and environments. Unity is important. It's vital. It's necessary. So one of the ways that we as a church... I've been not just talking about unity, not just understanding and learning about unity, but practicing unity together is we have been going through this 20 days of praying together journey. Uh, we are coming up on the last week. We've done three weeks already. We are in our last week starting tomorrow. So if you have not jumped in yet, you're not too late. That's what's so great about unity. It's not like, oh man, missed it. I wasn't here like a month ago. It's you get to jump in and be part of it as well. So right now, I think as I was looking at our numbers, I think we have 552 people that have been praying together over the course of these 20 days. So jump on in. Uh, it's going to be a great week of praying together. It's a text message Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And uh, it's just something, again, significant of not just the prayer that you pray, not just the scripture you read, but the fact that you're doing that with over 500 other people as well. So if that hasn't been something you've been able to do yet, would love to have you text in and be part of that because it is important. So just to recap real quick, a couple of things we've been talking through when he's been talking through unity. We've looked at the power of unity that, man, something significant happens when we all lock arms and we're moving in the same direction and I stay focused on Jesus. Something significant happens when we are unified together. But we also recognize that there's a cost to that, that unity is not accidental. You don't just accidentally get unified and united together. It requires sacrifice and humility, a whole lot of intentionality. And last week, Chad was here, did a great job preaching. Thanks for letting me and my family be gone for a little bit. But Chad did a great job of pulling that together and saying, so here's what that looks like in relationships. Romans chapter 12, we all have a part in this and we are intended to be doing uh, things together, not just on our own, but in community, unity within community. And today, what I want you to pay attention to is it's easy to let that slip. right? We can see the power of it. We can see the purpose of it. We can see how to build unity. We can see the cost of it. But let's be honest, it's hard to hold on to unity. In fact, it's a whole lot harder to build unity than it is to lose unity. It does not take much for there to be division and, and that unity to begin to crack. The reason I believe that is, is I see that happen all the time. I see people and families and churches and organizations work really hard to grow and develop unity, and then it breaks down almost overnight. It does not take much for that division to sneak in and what seemed like a little crack has now turned into a chasm, and what was once unified is now divided. I've seen this in my own family. I, I'm not bragging by any stretch, but I feel like I've got a pretty healthy family for the most part. We are by no means perfect, trust me. But I feel like we love each other pretty well. Uh, we are united some of the time, maybe most of the time, depending on the season of life we're in. Uh, but even as loving as we are, even as united as I'd like to think my family is, I've seen that unity break apart in a moment. Like there's one question, and I know this, and, and even though I know this and I know what it does is like throwing a grenade in my family's living room, but anytime I, I ask this question, it just completely falls apart. Well, they heard it. What's for dinner? That's all it takes. We'll be driving around and all of a sudden I'll make the mistake of asking my united, loving, peaceful family, what should we do for dinner? 
And it goes from loving one another to talking about our day to an all out brawl and war of, well, I want McDonald's. No, I want Wendy's. You picked last time. Uh uh-uh, uh, I didn't pick last time. You picked last time. This is never fair. Why do you love me more than him? And then the other person says, well, why do you hate all of us? Like, and I'm sitting in the driver's seat, like, what just happened? How did we get to, I hate my children? from asking the what's for dinner question. Now this would be an easy, so we are counting down the days, if Chick-fil-A would open back up. <laughs> Problem solved. But these last several weeks have been hard for our family. Because when there's not something to be unified around like Chick-fil-A, it's a war. What are we gonna have for dinner? It's not fair. He always gets to pick. You never let me choose. You picked last time. Nuh-uh. I mean, it's just, you can see how that division happens quickly. It does not take much. So we've talked a lot about unity, but how do we keep unity? How do we protect the unity that God is desiring for us? John chapter 10, just to kick us off so you kind of have a direction here. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus' words here. He says, The thief, talking about the devil, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And he's got a lot of ways that he does that. One of them is through division. You want your life to be stolen away? You want your quality of life to be be stolen away? Allow division to take root. But the devil works hard to cause division. But then Jesus flips and says, but here's why I'm here. He says, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Just so we're clear, when you see that word rich, that does not mean financially. That means an abundant life, uh, a rich, meaningful life. And he has a lot of ways that he does that. One of those ways is through unity. So the devil's going to work hard to create disunity. The devil's going to work hard to create division, to find those little places of divisiveness and exploit them where Jesus' intent is to unite. Us with God the Father, but us with one another as well. So as we go through today, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I want you to, in your mind, pinpoint a relationship or an environment that is starting to show the cracks of division. Be honest with yourself. Like, this won't be helpful if you're just like, no, 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 things are great. That may be true, but I guarantee there is a relationship or there is an environment that you are part of. You might not be the cause of it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But there is a relationship or an environment that what was once really strong and unified is starting to break down. Maybe it's completely divided. Might be somewhere in that process, but I want you to have that relationship or that environment in mind as we go through our Bible story today, I think it's going to be helpful. So let me pray, but keep that in mind as we go through this. Lord, we come before you humbly and would ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us as we open your word. May we not take for granted what we are about to do. We are going to hear from you. So Holy Spirit, our hearts are open to you. I pray you remove the distractions, help us be focused on you. May we have a listening ear and a soft heart as you speak and we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so if you got your Bible, we're going to be in Acts, the early part of Acts today. Um, and this is going to be helpful. This is why having a physical Bible would be a little bit more helpful, because we're going to kind of quickly go through something. I want you to see it if you've got it with you. Um, so Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus has already been resurrected, but then he ascends up to heaven, leaving the disciples there with kind of like the now what look on their face. So you go through Acts chapter 1, then Acts chapter 2, you see the Holy Spirit shows up and then equips the disciples and these early believers to now go and do what Jesus called them to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So now they're doing what Jesus called them to do. We see the start of the early church by the end of Acts chapter 2. A lot of new people are coming to to faith. They're being saved. They're being part of the church. That number grows to over 3,000. Chapter 3, we start to see some interesting things happen within the church, Right? It's like pedal to the metal, add gas to the flame, add gas to the fire where, where now miracles are happening through the apostles. People are starting to take notice, which is good and bad in some ways. By Acts chapter 4, it starts to get more difficult. By Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders have had enough and they start, start their version of persecution. There's going to be a great persecution that happens a little bit later, but they start this small version of persecution if there's such thing as a small version. And they start arresting the apostles. They start beating the apostles. They start telling them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 5, that has escalated. Verse 26 says, the captain went with the temple guards and arrested the apostles. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. Talking about Jesus after they arrested all the apostles. Now, we would think by this point, that's getting pretty difficult for the apostles to preach the name of Jesus. We would think that the growth of the church would actually slow down. You would think that, man, they they were first telling people about Jesus and no one was opposing them. That's why there was so much growth. But by Acts chapter four, Acts chapter five, we would think that would slow down because now the religious leaders are pushing against them and there's a lot of opposition. But in fact, chapter five, verse 42, we see it doesn't slow down at all. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they, the apostles, continue to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. So in other words, it didn't stop them at all. That's important because often when we talk about unity and division, we think of all these external forces that fight against the church or fight against the believers or fight against Christians. But what we see in Acts is that actually doesn't have any any hindrance on the unity of the church. The external opposition, the persecution, did not hinder God's movement in his church. But then chapter 6 shows up. And in chapter 6, I would say, this is my opinion, I would say this is the greatest threat the early church faced. Not from the religious leaders. It was not from the, the Roman Empire. It wasn't from Caesar. What we see in Acts chapter 6, I would say, is the greatest threat the early church faced. And I think we might even agree that it is still our greatest threat today in regards to our unity. Here's Acts chapter 6, verse 1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Let's break that down. Because when I read verse 1, I see a recipe for division. There's a lot of things, again, Acts 1 through 5, that led to the growth and moving forward of, of the church 
But then by Acts chapter 6, we see the beginnings of disunity. We see the beginnings of these cracks that, if continued, would lead to a pretty major division within the church. So what I see in Acts chapter, or Acts chapter 6, verse 1 is the first part, but as the believers, we're talking about Christians. Again, this is not the church versus Jewish religious leaders. It's not the Christians versus Rome. It's Christian versus Christian. It's the believers versus other believers. This is an internal problem. This is an internal conflict. And unless I'm wrong, at least in my experience, I've never heard or seen of a church split that happened because of external forces. It always happens internally. It's believers against believers that cause a division, that cause the disunity. So like, make sure we're clear on this. This is an internal church problem, and they begin fighting against one another. It's that internal division that starts to crack at the unity that has been built so far in this early church's, this early church's history. So, but as the believers in that next part, they rapid, rapidly multiplied. They were growing like crazy. Now, as any organization, any community, any family knows, when anything grows, it leads to the big C word, change. Ooh, we don't like that word. We don't like change. Even if you say you like change, there's parts of change you still don't like. We don't like change because here's what it shows us. It shows us just how tightly we're holding to our preferences, our opinions, and our comforts. And when things begin to change, your comforts and preferences and opinions begin to be challenged. And that's when we find out like, oh, I don't like this change because now this that I've held on to is starting to change. And this is what I like about it. I start to change. Our church is no different from this. Like, look around for a second. It's a little crowded right? I don't know if there's people in the lobby or not, but if so, thank you. I mean, like, this is, this is great. You're going to always have change that comes with it. And as we're building our expansion, trust me, there is plenty of opportunities for unity. There's also plenty of opportunities for disunity. Because just imagine where this can begin to go. Oh, we're going to get too big. Well, we don't have enough space. And there's going to be other people like, well, what if, we, what if we don't have enough space? We need to get bigger. The things that you've come to love are going to change. So what, it gives us a, a heart check, doesn't it? What am I truly loving? What am I truly caring about? What are my preferences and opinions? Because when change begins to happen, it will challenge us. So again, internal change. And then we see where that leads. There were rumblings of discontent. Now let me say, discontentment is not necessarily a bad thing. Right? Discontentment can actually lead to some great mo- movements of change. So instead of saying, oh, being discontent is a bad thing, no, I would, I, would, I would say, well, where is your discontentment leading you? If you're discontent with, with uh, the status of your family, man, I just want us to grow more as a family. If you're discontent with, with our current church environment, like, man, we want to see it grow, then that's not a bad thing because you get to say, so let's move in that direction. Let's help it become something better. Let's help something become what God desires it to be. Discontentment can lead to something good. It's when it leads to the complaining that it becomes a problem. When those feelings of discontent lead to just talking about it, that's when it starts to get unhealthy. And that's what we see happen next in this passage. 
says there were rumblings of discontent. Then here it is. The Greek-speaking believers complained, there's our word, about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying their widows were being discriminated against or overlooked, again, overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That word complain. If you, if, I think we went over this maybe a few months ago. There's a Greek word here. Anybody remember it? Oh, it's a hard one, but it's a fun one. Gangusmas. Gangusmas. That's the Greek word for complain. It just sounds like you just picture something. Gangusmas, gangusmas, gangusmas. Right? It just sounds like the grumpy old man, doesn't it? That's gangusmas. So what happened is they, it was internal problem. There was change. It led to discontentment. And now there was a lot of gangusmas. And they were just complaining. Now, is there anything wrong with them bringing up the problem? What's the problem? Well, people aren't getting food in the daily distribution of food. That's a valid problem. It's how they approached the problem that became an issue, that began the division, the cracks of division. Notice they were not complaining, we don't have food. They complained about other believers. The Hebrew-speaking, Jew, the Hebrew-speaking believers complained about, or I'm sorry, the Greek Speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. It was one against another. They were complaining about another person. In the context of believers, we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to be unified together. And here they are complaining about one another. Those cracks of division are getting wider and wider. The unity that they had put so much time and effort into is starting to crack because of a problem that is now becoming an internal division. See, problems are not a bad thing. We all are going to face problems. There's always going to be conflicts. There's always going to be disagreements. And truly, those disagreements and those problems actually can act as a catalyst to grow unity. It gives us a common problem to all work around and to all solve and to pull together. But just as easily, it can become a dividing factor. And that's where the church is at. By this early part of Acts chapter 6, the church is at a very crucial point. Is there going to be division or is there going to be unity amongst these believers? With all the change, will they be united together or are there so many problems that they just can't solve it together? Abraham Lincoln said, I'm sure you've heard this this phrase, his quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Completely agree, but let's make sure we give credit where credit is due. He got that from Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. So true, isn't it? When there's this internal complaining, when there's this internal infighting, there's going to be division and it will not stand. So once again, the early church is at a very, very crucial point. Will this problem continue to grow the division, or will this problem be a catalyst for growing together in unity? So here's what they do. So that's the recipe for disaster. That's the recipe for division. And remember earlier I said, hey, pick out that relationship or that environment where you start to see the division. I would bet that you start seeing those. Yep, it's happening on the inside. Oh, there's some discontent. There's a lot of complaining and gossip happening. It's because of some change, good change or bad change. Things are moving in the right direction, maybe the wrong direction. And you can start to pinpoint at least one of those and start to see that's where the division is beginning. So how did the apostles, how did, how did the 12 disciples begin to 
recognize that this potential for division and this divide and protect and save the unity. Here's what they did. Let's look at what they did and then we'll talk about it because I think it'll help us too. Verse two, so the 12, the 12 disciples called a meeting. That's what church people do really well. We call meetings all the time. Let's get a committee. Let's get a meeting together. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And that is not said with any disrespect if you hear it in the original language. We'll talk about it. Verse three, and so brothers select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then, the, uh, then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. I love that they called a meeting, like kidding aside. I love that they did that. Reason I love that is because it's showing that they're not ignoring the problem. So often that's what we do. There's a problem, there's complaints, there's discontentment, and we just shove it under the rug. Well, it's just like part of it. Yeah, no, he's perfect. Like, it's okay. Like, it'll, we'll get through it. It's just a season. And we do that in all kinds of different environments, and we don't actually acknowledge that it's a problem. We don't acknowledge that there is an issue. Whether you agree with that being a major problem or not, can we at least acknowledge there is a problem. So the fact that they called a meeting says, yes, we see it as a problem. Let's deal with the problem. Now, how they dealt with the problem, we said that earlier about discontentment, not necessarily a bad thing, but where does it lead you? How the apostles dealt with the problem here is very different than how it was being dealt with in verse one. Remember verse one, these believers are complaining about these believers because these believers think this is, they're doing this. So they're fighting each other. But what the apostles do is they call everybody together. They say, guys, 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 there's a problem. The problem is not these believers or those believers. The problem is some people aren't getting food. That's the problem. You notice the difference there? Verse one, well, they're overlooking us and they don't care and they're doing this on purpose. They're showing favoritism. By the time we get to verse two, it's like, the problem is some people aren't getting food. Let's solve the problem. Let's deal with the problem. Let's fight against the problem and not the person. That's how we begin to protect the uni. Attack the problem, not the person. It fascinates me how quickly a problem turns personal, right? Again, my own family asking the, the wrong question. What's for dinner? What would you like for dinner? It goes from Let's figure out how to put food in our stomachs to nobody loves me. Like somehow it got real personal real fast. I'm like, time out. What? This has nothing to do with love. We're literally talking about fast food and bellies. It has nothing to do with our care and our love for you. But it can turn personal really, really fast. Let me show you what this looks like. Ian, I'm going to borrow you. He knows this is coming. So come on up, Ian. Let me show you what verse one looks like compared to verse two. Everybody get it, Ian, a big round of applause. Thanks for coming to church today. I hope you come back. All right, so verse one, what we see with verse one is these believers are complaining about these believers. So it looked more like this, right? They're fighting against one another. They're like, well, you're not giving us food. And you're like, yes, we did. I mean, this is what it looks like. It's a back and forth, back and forth. Nothing good comes from this ever, right? There's not a way to solve this problem. You're a lot stronger than me. Like, ease up a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to pick differently at the 11 o'clock. <laughs> I'm going to go into my kid's classroom and, hey, I need a third grader. Right? This doesn't work. This doesn't work. 
Now, when we look at verse two, come over on this side with me. When we come into verse two, we see the apostles get everybody together and say, the problem is they're not getting food. How do we deal with that problem? How do we fight against that? Man, this is, I like having you on my side. This is, this is much better. This is a better way to solve a problem. This is a better way to fight a problem. Now notice, in both scenarios, from verse one to verse two, both recognize the problem. Go back on the other side. We're gonna do a lot of back and forth here. Verse one, though, it's not what's the problem, it's who's the problem, right? No, 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 just you, just you. You are the problem. That's the only solution here. And you go back and forth because it, that's exactly how that goes. Like you're the problem, and it goes back and forth. There's no way to solve this as long as you're saying who's the problem. But by verse two, it's not who's the problem, it's what's the problem. What's the problem? There's not food for those people. Let's agree on that. We both agree they're not getting food, so let's figure that out together. One more time, go on that side. Here's the, here's the pushback I get on that, right? Is, well, they don't understand my side. We're on different sides. He doesn't understand my perspective. He doesn't know what it's like. Totally agree with that, right? It's very difficult to, to see from somebody else's perspective. But here's, if I can, challenge that line of thought. Because in my opinion, and I just don't see this in scripture where we are commanded to to always have the other person's perspective. Yes, we should have empathy and sympathy, and there's elements of that. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to fully be able to see your side of it. So here's how I would challenge you to get somebody to come with you on the other side, and how you can maybe go to another side. Even if you cannot see their perspective. Instead of me trying to say, man, I really want to try to see your side of things. Instead, I'm going to ask this question. This is a hard one to answer. What does God love about you? I have to answer that. It's not what I love about you because I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> it's what does God love about you? Instead of me trying to see from your perspective, because I just can't see anything. There's nothing good about this man over here. He doesn't see anything right. Can I pause and say, forget me. How does God see you? And when I start to be honest about what God sees in you and how God views you, and more importantly, why God loves you, I can agree on that. I might not understand your perspective. I might not be able to see from your side, but I can, I can honestly, if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, I can, I can answer the question why God loves you. That's how you get it on somebody's side. That's how you get on the same side, even when your perspectives don't match. Because let's be honest, there's more important things than your and I's perspective. Why does God love them? Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Great job. So when there starts to show cracks of division and that unity is becoming, um, is, is starting to erode and fall apart, and you start to notice it's their fault, it's us versus them, can I challenge your thinking and ask the question, what does God love about him? What does God love about her? Why did God send his one and only son, Jesus, to sacrifice his life out of love and compassion for them? And you might not ever see from their point of view, but can you be mature enough, spiritually mature enough to see from God's point of view? Then you can be on the same side and attack the problem not the other person. That's what the apostles did, and they did it brilliantly. The next thing we see that they do here, and I want to explain, because it sounds, a, the way that we translate what was happening here, the language sounds a little bit different. But bottom line is, they didn't allow the problem to redirect their purpose 
or change their priorities. Let me say that again, make sure you understand that. They didn't allow, the early Christians, the disciples specifically, as they're leading the charge on this problem, they didn't allow the problem to redirect their purpose or change their priorities. Notice how they say it here. I'm gonna rephrase it in a second. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God. That's a priority. Not running a food program. Other translations use the word neglect. They would say, it would not be good for us to neglect the word of God in order to distribute food. It's not saying that, oh, we're too big, we're too great, we're too high and mighty to deliver food. They just recognize there's a priority, right? There's a purpose. And they're holding tightly to the purpose of the church. And man, this is one of the hardest things, I think, that is one of the harder things for a church to hold on to. Because as a church, man, we do a lot. We do. We, we make sure people have food and we help the homeless and we, we care for widows and orphans. We do all these things. But at the end of the day, church, we have one purpose, to tell people about the good news of Jesus so that he could save them. Bottom line. And what can happen is these problems can start to redirect our focus and be like, oh, you're right. We've got to put all of our resources, like everybody, all hands on deck. We need to go and take care of this food problem. And the disciples are wise enough to say, no, 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 no. Yes, that is a problem. But our priority, what do they say here? is teaching the word of God. We cannot lose what we are truly called to do. And problems have a great way of manifesting into distractions. Those distractions, I believe the devil uses to then cause division. So the church held tightly to, we exist to spread the good news of Jesus, period. And yes, there's a lot of other things that we are part of, but we will not neglect what's most important for the other things that are important. I see this mostly from my role as a pastor. I see this a lot in families, right? Families get so spread thin and you start to forget, why are we a family? Like we're not just a business to go through life. We're not just roommates that divvy up responsibilities. We're a family. And if we're not careful, family, friends, church, and business, we lose focus on the main thing with good intentions to solving problems. But it creates distractions that lead to division. So the disciples said, no, we're not gonna have it. We are gonna stay focused. We're gonna acknowledge the problem. Yes, the fact that some people aren't getting food is absolutely a problem. But it's not the most important thing. So we're gonna solve it, but we're not in neglect, not going to neglect what is most important. So here's how they began to actually solve the problem. You look here, it says, so let's get seven men. Notice some of the requirements. Well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom. And I love this line. We will give them this responsibility. We recognize there are very important things, including the distribution of food. So this is a very meaningful task. But we can't do it, the apostle said. We have to stay focused on the main thing. So we need somebody else to step in and meet some very real needs. They shared the responsibility. So often when division starts, there's a handful that just feel the responsibility and the weight of all of it. In unity, we are all part of this together. In your family, in our church, and in any other environment, if there's unity, that means we all have a part in that. That's what Chad talked about some in Romans chapter 12. You are the body of Christ, and every one of you has a part in it. 1 Corinthians 12 says the exact same thing. So the apostles recognized this of, yeah, it's a problem, so we need to have more people helping. So they shared the responsibility. 
I see this in my family. Uh, one of the complaints, it's funny, I'm talking a lot about food today. Uh, Becky and I will be making dinner, and the kids are like wandering around the house, gun goose mossing about the food. Oh, we're so hungry. When do we eat? We're starving. They do that whole thing. You know how you do like the back bend when you're hungry? So they do that whole thing. They might even fall down on the kitchen floor, just like, I don't have any more substance in me. So they're like dying of starvation, apparently, to them. And so my solution. I could cause more division and just fight about it, or I could offer a solution that shares the responsibility and says, hey, we'll be ready a lot faster if you'll set the table. Oh, that changes that gun goosemas a lot. Either they're like, yeah, I'm super hungry. Whatever you need us to do, or it's like, nah, I'm not that hungry. I'll go outside and play for a little bit. <laughs> I'm like, I knew it. It's usually that one. When you share the responsibility, you're bringing people into not just the problem, but into the solution. If you just bring people into the problem, we just complain about it. When you bring people into the solution, they have a part in it, and it's sharing the responsibility. Let's finish the section. Here's what happens last. Verse 5, so everyone liked this idea. They chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, however you want to say the rest of these. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Now, verse seven, check this out. Look what happens. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is incredible. Not only did they protect the unity of the church, they also saw God's word move. That's the result. That's why we protect the unity. Specifically, as we're in a church setting, reading about, one of the, reading about the early church, yes, apply this to your family, friends, and other relations, but let's talk about the church for a second. Church, how we handle disagreements, infighting, conflict and problems will either lead to verse 7 and God's message continue to spread or it leads to division which hinders that how we fight for unity and how we protect the unity matters not just so that we all get along really the purpose behind unity is so that happens so God's message continues to spread and that other people get to experience the same saving grace that you and I have. That they get to experience what true unity and community looks like with one another, but also with God. That's why we fight for unity. That's why we protect the unity. That's why we give up on some of our preferences. That's why we don't have a lot of non-negotiables with our opinions. Because unity is more important. Because of where that unity leads. Church, we can be focused on a lot of different things. But when we're focused on Jesus, we begin to deal with things the way that Jesus would. Right? If we just focus on the complaints and the discontentment, I mean, we are, let me just make sure that we're on the same page. I'm going to disappoint you if I haven't already. Like, don't, don't wait too long. It's going to happen. There's going to be things that you don't like about this specific church. There's going to be things that, man, if you, were in, if you would do it differently, it'd be this. Like, we're all going to have those because we're so different. The goal is not getting our way. The goal is unity so that other people know Jesus. And don't forget, we are part of a much larger church, not just here in Dawsonville, around the world. Millions of believers gather in their homes and in their churches to worship the same God. 
may we be united together so that more people would know him. So here's what I would ask you to commit to with me, is this statement, that we will protect the unity by these three things, by being focused on Jesus, grounded in his word, and committed to the mission he has given us, period. That should be what we strive to do. No matter what church you attend, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, would you protect the unity of the big church, the big C church, Christ's body, the bride of Christ, by staying focused on him, not the problems and not the issues and everything else. Stay focused on Jesus. That we would be grounded in his word a lot more than our opinions. Grounded in his word a lot more than our preferences. Grounded in his word a lot more than our comforts. And committed to the mission that he's called us to. What's the mission? Well, we call it the Great Commission. When Jesus looked at his believers and said, now go. Go and make disciples. Tell other people about Jesus. That's our mission. And may nothing distract us from what we are called to do as one of the many churches that Jesus is using to advance his kingdom. May we commit to that. And may we not take it lightly of what happens when we protect the unity and how God will use that. In John, in John chapter 17, we'll end here. John chapter 17, uh, this is right before Jesus uh, is going to be arrested and then crucified. And if you know anything about that moment in Jesus' life, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. He prays a lot of different things, prays for a lot of different people. Uh, there's a lot of different prayers there. I want to focus on two verses where he prays for you and me. Do you know Jesus prayed specifically for us? He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for many people, but he also prayed for you and for me. Here's what, he's, here's what Jesus prayed. John 17, verse 20, Jesus' words. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. Those are all, we are part of the, all the believers that will come to know Jesus because of the message of the early disciples. That's us. Here's what he prayed for us. Verse 21, Jesus said, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so the world will believe you sent me. It blows my mind that Jesus could have prayed for a lot of different things. And the one thing he prayed for before his death was that we would be united he knew the significance of our unification as, as believers. He knew the fallout of division that comes internally within the church. And so he prayed that we would be one. Together, but also with him. That we would be united with our Father in heaven. That we would receive the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through a relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship with him. And when you put a bunch of believers together, focused on Jesus, grounded in his word, committed to the mission he's given us, Jesus' words, not even the gates of hell can stop his church. So may we be united with one another and with him. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for how you orchestrate our lives, for the people you put in our lives, for the churches you call us to. 
God, there's so many reasons for us to, to not be united. There's plenty of reasons why we should not have unity. But we only need one reason, and that's you. Jesus, you are the only thing that keeps us together. You are who we focus on. You are who we listen to. You are who we follow. So not just us as a church here in Dawsonville, Georgia, but God, we pray with the millions of believers around the world today that are also united together, that we are one because of you, Jesus. May we not take lightly, Jesus, your prayer for us, that we would all be one together, but also one with you, that we would have a personal relationship with you, but we would also be united as believers so that you can advance your kingdom, not so that we get the type of church we want, but so that other people come to know you. So God, I pray for conviction. I pray that you would move in our hearts and begin to show us where our preferences and opinions are maybe becoming a little too important. God, may once again, as we said, may our focus be on you. May we be grounded in only your word. And may we be committed to the calling you've given us to tell people about you. There's a lot of problems that we get to be faced with. There's a lot of problems we get to help solve. Nothing is more important than telling people about you. Help us to keep our priorities in line. Help us to keep our focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen.